Joshua 14 continues uh, where we left off last week with Joshua distributing the land, which will happen for the next uh, seven or eight chapters, uh, to and amongst the tribes, 12 tribes of Israel, who are the 12 sons of Jacob. And God commands in this first portion here that the land be distributed or divided by casting lots. And it said in verse 2 that their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one-half tribes. In verse 5 it says the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses, and they allotted the land. And we saw last week, and we know that as God controls the falling of the lots, however the lots fall and to whomever they fall, we know that God himself is the one who assigns the shape, the size, the nature of all portions, of all gifts, of all experiences, of all that he promises in life, as life, in his land, in his creation. And though sin, like we saw last week with Reuben, although sin and also maybe a little bit of stupidity, They can influence, those things can influence sometimes the portions that we get. We can still be confident that what we have or what we don't have, what you have or what you don't have, is still governed by God's sovereign will. In accordance with His perfect grace, His perfect wisdom, His perfect mercy, His perfect goodness, and His perfect justice, He is still in control of that. And exactly what method, though, these guys use for casting lots isn't ever really told to us. Scholars disagree disagree about what might have happened and what it looked like. And I think we probably rightly view that even action or or practice as somewhat archaic and, and not for today. There are, I read recently, churches who actually do cast lots for things like elders. Uh, They actually write that into their bylaws, that we will cast lots and this is how we'll do it. We don't do that. Um, Interestingly enough, I don't think that's really stopped a lot of people from trying to develop our own strange ways of discerning God's will, um, like casting lots or just, you know, some decisions that we're making. Um, The last time we actually see lots cast... Uh, In the New Testament, we see it when they are replacing Judas, the disciple who betrayed Jesus and later hung himself. They cast lots to find a twelfth disciple uh, out of the witnesses that were with Jesus for those three years of his ministry, and they replace him. The next chapter, though, in Acts, it takes place in Acts chapter 1, and Acts chapter 2 is the chapter where we see the Holy Spirit poured out and the church uh, is empowered and directed then by the Spirit. And so we see then that straws and stones and maybe little pieces of paper, um, I'm sure you've never done that, like uh, tried to make a decision by, Lord, um, if you want me to do X or Y, could you just make a star flash across the sky right now? Or I'm going to open my Bible and you tell me what I'm to do, you know, as I randomly put my finger on something. We all have kind of weird ways, but I think Acts chapter 2 tells us the means by which we are to discern God's will and all those stones and slips of paper or random things that we like that are kind of mystical or or fancy 
are replaced by God's Spirit, whom Jesus sent and said would teach us and guide us and protect us in all wisdom and all truth. And so we have the Spirit of the living God dwelling in us, helping us to understand the word living that God has given us so that we can make decisions, so we don't need to cast lots uh, anymore. Now, the value of these verses, though, these first couple, I don't think is, is in the method that they used for casting, uh, or even that, that's the way they did it. I think the power of these verses is in the phrase, the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded. And we easily read over that. But I think we need to understand as we look through, you know, basically 11 chapters at least of warfare and, and big conquests and huge events and these incredible moments of faith, we understand that, that faithfulness isn't all about big wars and conquests. Uh, this is a very seemingly meaningless little thing that they're doing here. But when God commissioned Joshua as the leader in the first chapter, it's important to understand or remember what God didn't say to Joshua. He didn't say to him, be careful to do most of what I say. Right? Be, be sure to do everything um, that you determine is worthy of doing. Right? I mean, come on. We, we put those filters on like, well, this is important, this is not. Both things in God's Word. And obedience, it seems, becomes less important to us in what might look like a meaningless task. But here, this meaningless little casting of lots is just as important as fighting the big wars and just as much of a test of their obedience as maybe the bigger things. God told them to distribute the land this way. Think about this. Even if they had felt, which I imagine in the thousands, perhaps millions of people that represent Israel, someone might have felt this way. Even if they felt like there might have been a better way to divvy it up. Right? A more effective method, a faster method, a fairer way to do things. Casting lots, come on, Josh, that's not really fair. Is it? I mean, look how big our tribe is. We need a lot of land, right? To kind of like, well, I know God says to do it this way, but this is a better way. We're not really going outside. Whoa, you are going outside of God's will if you said do this. And instead, they obey. They obey. They obey. And I think for me, as we we look at, we're going to look at a guy named Caleb, the thing about Caleb is that he gives us a picture of faith that, quite frankly, is going to really challenge a lot of us. Because you have a picture of what faith looks like. You have a list, a job description, things that you've kind of decided this is what a Christian looks like and not. And I'm going to challenge you to say that perhaps, perhaps, possibly, maybe, that your idea of a faithful Christian is in fact, isn't actually biblical. And that you have determined, quite frankly, what spirituality is going to be for you, but it's not really according to what God says. This is what faithfully following looks like. And when it push comes to shove, it comes down to, well, I just don't like that. That's not my personality, right? That's not the way I'm wired. We be careful saying that. The heart of this passage, though, is about a genuinely faithful soldier named Caleb. And I love this guy. 
I have sat all week just thinking about this guy, a guy that's mentioned uh, in the book of Numbers for a couple chapters, and then here in Joshua, and then pretty much is forgotten except minus a few references. And so we get this one picture of him, and if Joshua is the example of a faithful leader and general, Caleb is this picture, an example of a faithful disciple, a follower, and soldier. There is a difference. Some of us, some of us here, some of us have, and some of us will be called to be a Joshua. But all of us are called to be Caleb's. Everyone is called to do what Caleb is going to do here and to live in a way that he lives out his faith. So Joshua begins, as we saw last week, reviewing the allotments on the eastern side of the land to the tribes of Reuben and Gad and Manasseh. And now he's going over to the west side where he's going to distribute the rest to the tribes and he's going to begin with Judah. But before he does, a man from Judah namely Caleb, comes up to give him a little reminder and make a request. In verse 6, he says, The people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal. Gilgal is the center of operations for Joshua. And Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, at Kedesh Barnea, concerning you and me. So he walks up to him and says, Hey, Mo, sorry, hey, Josh, you know what Moses said. So the question everyone should be asking is, what did Moses say? Excellent students. Let's go further, okay? Who is Caleb and what did the Lord say to Moses who said it to him? Well, we first read about Caleb well before he was a battle-hardened 85-year-old warrior back when he was a young 40-year-old sprite in the wilderness, Okay? Yes, 40-year-old Sprite. You'll see 85-year-old Sprite for him, but 40 years old. He was among 12 guys, one for each tribe, okay? Moses was going to send, on the edge of the land of Canaan, he was going to send 12 guys in to spy out the land. He chose 12 guys. Caleb represented Judah. Joshua was also with him, and he represented Ephraim. So you have 12 guys of which Joshua and Caleb are a part of, and they go and, and spy out the land for 40 days. And they go mainly around an area, around a city called Hebron, in that general hill country. Now, when the group returned after 40 days, 10 of these guys, the majority, had what would be characterized as a faithless report. They had a very specific report, but it was a faithless report because God had already said prior to that time, I've given you this land. You will destroy anyone that's in there. It's flowing with milk and honey. So they come back with a report, and they're like, dude, it is flowing with milk and honey, just like God had said. Then they add to the report that it's also flowing with these big giant dudes. And we can't defeat them, which God had not said. And they get scared. And they are fearful, and they say, we can't do this. And Caleb, the lone voice, Joshua's there, but he does not say anything. Caleb, the lone voice, in Numbers 13, says this, after their report. Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it. For we are well able to overcome it. 
This is the first time you hear Caleb saying anything. And in his first words, he expresses a faithfulness and a fear of God in contrast to the majority of the spies who are pretty convinced that men are too powerful. It's, it's a fear of men. And their proposal or their report is very convincing to Israel, who now gets all scared. And Caleb is fairly ignored. But along with Joshua again, Caleb says something else as Israel starts to follow the report of these ten guys. And he says in verse 8 of the same chapter, verse chapter 14 of Numbers, If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Verse 9, Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they're bread. They're bread for us. And we'll throw a little bit of that honey that's up there on it, and we'll eat them. They're nothing. Okay? They are bread. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear for them. Do not fear them. So, though God, we'll see later, promises a blessing to Caleb for standing up, in that moment, his stance equals isolation. He is separated. He is, he is ostracized. He stands alone. Well, he and Joshua stand alone against pretty much the rest of Israel. And it's here that we actually begin to see what faith genuinely looks like. And I know that you're going to be thinking, many of us, like, well, take a stand. That, oh, I know what that means. Let's just be measured about it, and you'll see what it actually means. First thing that we see is Caleb's faith is different. And that's according to God's words. What it says is, um, what happens when he makes that final statement, they actually pick up stones to stone him. They're going to stone Joshua, they're going to stone Moses, they're going to stone Caleb. And the only thing that stops him is the glory of God coming down and saying, whoa, stop. And what God says to Moses is quite interesting. He says, basically, um, I'm tired of these guys rebelling against me all these times. I'm going to kill them all. And I'm going to start with you, Moses, and just go ahead and make a new family. And Moses, as he had done several times before, intercedes, prays, and God relents and says, that's fine, but I'm still going to punish this generation. Punishing me, I'm going to kill everyone over the age of 21 over the next 40 years. And they will not go into the land. And then he says something, God, particular about Caleb. And God says this in verse 24 of Numbers 14. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he went and his descendants shall possess it. Caleb had a different spirit. He had a different spirit. And so that we're not mistaken, the different spirit is simply a devotion to God. Let me simplify a little more. A different spirit was a difference between someone who believes and disbelieves. That's the difference. He says, this guy believes, no one else does. He has a different spirit. He is not devoted to men. He's not devoted to the land. He's not devoted to Israel or the church. He's not devoted to religion or spirituality. He is devoted from his heart 
to God. It is the kind of faith that is a, I count everything else as nothing that I might get God. Genuine devotion to God. That kind of genuine devotion to God. What I say genuine as in just real. Real devotion to God will at some point require you to take a stand. At some point you'll have to take a stand. It will require you to sacrifice immediate blessings for future ones. At some point. Now, the truth is, and this will sound really dark and, and maybe mean, but that's okay. The longer I'm a pastor, the more people I meet who say they're Christian and I actually don't believe are. I never would have said that when I first started leading the church, but the more people, I mean, I meet lots of Christians. Very spiritual people. But you begin to see what they actually believe and how they live, and you see that there's actually a, a, a very stark difference. The Christian label, if you will, is along, around a majority of people, but there are very few, there is a minority of people who actually follow God. That's the truth. And why? You go, well, why is that? Well, on just maybe a, a fleshly level, I think, it's because following God's word means doing what's unpopular, what's unwise, and what's unusual according to the world standards. I don't mean unusual as um, extreme, like I'm going to you know, do everything I can to make myself look like uh, a Christian and just, you know, whether that be t-shirts, stickers, uh, you know, being obnoxious and wherever I can be about I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying different. And it seems there's a movement, honestly, in today's churches to like, be anything but different. To try and go, you know what, we just gotta, we gotta be, we got to be the same. And this missional term has actually turned into a term of compromise. We're like, I just want you know, to not be different. We're different. You should be different. You're supposed to be different. Taking a stand, though, I don't think has to mean standing on the, the lunch table in the break room and proclaiming Jesus as loud as you can. Like, I know I'm going to take a stand. There's someone sinning, and I've got to make sure I rebuke them. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about taking that kind of a stand, though that may certainly happen. I think the, the truth is, when Jesus saves you, when Jesus saves you, you don't try to get a different spirit. That's not something you like search out and find or aspire to. When Jesus saves you, you possess a different spirit. You possess a different spirit by nature of being changed, by, tr by tr being transformed. What does 2 Corinthians 5.17 said? The old is gone, the new has come. You are a new creation. What does that mean? I think it means you're new. John chapter 3, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and says, you are going to be reborn. What's that mean? I'm pretty sure it means you're reborn. Something different. There's been a change. There's been a transformation. You've been gone from being dead to be made alive. You've gone from being blind to you can see. It's not like, well, now that I know I'm blind, I'm going to try to see. That's not the way it works. <laughs> you are changed. You are different. And that spirit moves in you in a way that's different. To live differently. 
It's, it is the natural outflow of being transformed. And so we take a stand without doubt because we believe in Jesus. And if you truly believe in Jesus, you have this different spirit dwelling in you that compels you to do what? To have a completely different view of everything. I didn't say you will live it out perfectly, but every, your desires change, your view changes. Your understanding of marriage is different. You have different finances. You have a different work ethic. You hold to a different view of suffering. You have different purposes in your life. You have a different source of hope and joy. There's a difference. You changed. Caleb's faith is different than everyone else's minus Joshua. And God says, dude, this guy's got a different spirit. And he describes it further, and he says that he wholly followed me. He's wholehearted. In verse 8 of uh, back in Joshua, chapter 14, Caleb recounts the same story. And he says in chapter 8, I'm sorry, verse 8, But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, which is describing the false report and the reaction of Israel. Yet I wholly followed the Lord my God, which God himself had said earlier. Verse 9, And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot is trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. He wholly followed the Lord. And my question for you is the same question I've been asking myself this week. Can I say that? Can I say that? I wholly follow God. I have wholly followed God. I will wholly follow God. I didn't ask if you can say, I have perfectly followed Him. I'm asking if you have followed Him wholeheartedly. The contrast to that, or the alternative to that, is categorizing your life into that, those things which are spiritual and those things which are not. And according to your list, this is what God gets, and this is what I get. Money, time, whatever. I'll give him 44 and a half minutes on Sunday. And other than that, you know, my life is mine. I've had conversations with guys who said, you know what? I'll give uh, certain things to God, but my money's mine. Guys claim to be a Christian. Like, how does that work? Exactly. Holy following God. I believe that you can follow God wholeheartedly and fail, and your relationship, because it's based on Christ's work, has not changed. But I do not believe that you can follow God half-heartedly and ever succeed. Now, God describes Caleb here as possessing a different spirit. And then he says he has wholly followed. And again, I always consider the alternative of things. Imagine possessing an ordinary spirit and a, you know, partly or half heart. I mean, I don't know about you, but those are the kind of relationships that I seek out. You know, people that are half committed, partially loving, um, sometimes gracious, you know, whatever. But I mean, think about that. It sounds kind of ridiculous, but there are without doubt more people who follow God 
half-heartedly giving them just his, the leftovers and, and the afterthoughts as opposed to a whole heart, as opposed to everything. Now, there's a very important point here that we probably will read past. There was no doubt in Caleb's faith. And notice when it comes. Okay, notice when he took the stand. Numbers 13 shows us that he didn't take the stand because it was going to be a benefit to himself. Okay, catch that? The moment he took a sand, God had not promised him anything. That blessing and, and what would happen later came later. The moment he took a stand, God did not promise him anything, and yet he still took a stand. Without the promise of blessing, without the guarantee of success, without the assurance of security, he followed God. That's faith. That's wholehearted faith. I continue to meet more and more people that want me to convince them why they should come to church, why they should read their Bible, by giving them a list of bennies. Let me sell you on what benefits these will have for you. Boom, boom, boom. There are benefits without doubt. But I doubt that I would be able to convince someone who's coming with that question. I don't see a desire in that person saying that. Wholehearted compelled, not because of the benefits I'm going to get, but because of God himself. Caleb's faith is not only different, it's not only wholehearted, but you see that it's humble, and this is just awesome, okay? Verse 10 and 11, I love, verse 10 says, Behold, the Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness, Okay, now, now catch this. We're talking about what kind of faith this guy's demonstrating, a faith for all of us. Caleb and Joshua took their stand together. Okay? They were the only two guys that took their stand. And he comes back. He's like, Joshua, you remember, back in the day, we took our stand together, right? And several chapters later, what happens? Who is installed as the leader of Israel? Joshua. And you never see Caleb like, whoa, 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 whoa. I was with him. I was there. Why are you getting all kinds of props? Why, why, why does he get to be the leader? I, I spoke up. I was going to get stoned, Jesus. Come on. What about me? What about me? What about me? You don't see Caleb do that. He silently served in the shadow of General Joshua through the wilderness wandering, across the Jordan River, through seven years of battle. And while God's promise to him for blessing was probably in the back of his mind, I wonder how tempted it was to start or try to claim some of the recognition that he might have thought he deserved. Because he doesn't seem to have any kind of special recognition. And he did this for 45 years. He got nothing for 45 years. No recognition, no special front seat, nothing. And he was humble, considering the needs of Israel and others as more important than himself, though he was there in the beginning. He was one of the two. He had no sense of entitlement, no sense of what about me. He was all about helping Joshua. 
He's a humble leader. There are those, I believe, who serve by leading, like your Joshua's, and there are those who are going to lead by serving, like the Caleb's. And Caleb is that trustworthy, never complaining, I believe in you, soldier who helped Joshua fulfill the mission that God had called him to. And not everyone is going to be a Joshua. Not everyone is going to be that leader out front, that person that is in charge of a group of people, that person is accountable and responsible for others, who is worthy of some kind of extra honor and also extra blame. Not everyone's going to be Joshua. I don't say get to be. It's not necessarily a privilege. But not everyone is going to be and is called to be a Joshua. And for some of us, quite frankly, that's an encouragement. I mean, you go, okay, I, I, I'm glad that I don't have to burden that. I don't want to be the one responsible, that I don't have to be the general, that I don't have to be the one carving out the path. I don't have to be one making the unpopular decisions or having the difficult conversations that no one would choose to have. In this role, uh, I, we have a plurality eldership. They can fire me at any moment. We are all equal, but I take the responsibility to do some more vision than they do, make some other decisions that they don't. All those decisions or proposals are submitted to them, but I have a, a first among equals, if you will, position and similar to Peter had. And you can read our eldership position about that. I am the one that gets the privilege oftentimes of having the conversations that don't turn out pretty. I don't enjoy it, but it has to be spoken. Things have to be said. And so for some of you, you're like, dude, I don't want to have to be the one to say that. It's encouraging. For some of you, though, honestly, it's probably discouraging to know that, you know what? I wanted to be Joshua. And being Caleb for you feels like less than maybe your desires were, less than you feel like you're entitled to, or that vision that you had of yourself, or you have yourself, may not actually be God's vision. I meet a lot of church planners, honestly, that come through Acts 29. And we tell more church planners you shouldn't do this than those who should. And they do not like to hear that. But it's for their good and their health, for the health of their family. For us to say, yeah, go do it. It'll work. And for not really to be God's will can be disastrous. It can be disastrous. But let me just put it like this. What you don't realize is uh, you want to be a Joshua and you're probably not content with being a Caleb, but I think what everyone doesn't realize is that every Joshua begins as a Caleb. Everyone is Caleb. And some have the wonderful, terrible privilege of being Joshua and having to lead. But before you judge Caleb as less, let me just tell you how much I love Caleb's. And how important I think Caleb's are. Dare I say we need actually a lot less Joshua's and a lot more Caleb's. Strong helpers who lead by serving. We need more men and women who will follow leaders up the crazy hills that they go. We need more men and women who are so faithful that when we're charging those hills, we look back and we know if everyone else runs, that 
Caleb's still there. Faithful, serving, cheering on, encouraging, faithful. We need more men and women who are worried less about position and title and accolades or whatever and simply about following Jesus and serving his bride in the role that God has called you to serve in. Joshua always had Caleb there for him to stay on mission for 45 years. And I just ask you to consider the different Caleb's you already have in your life. I sat on this uh, for a little bit thinking about um, the different Caleb's that I have. And um, honestly, my, the most important Caleb in my, wife, my life is my, my wife, my bride. She's just awesome. I found out her parents actually were, uh, thought she was a boy and they were going to name her Caleb, which was just beautifully ironic. But she is my helpmate. And she loves me. And I know some people cringe at this. She serves me, and I serve her and love her. But she is a Caleb to me like no other. And she is the one, when I go charge on crazy hills like, hey, let's plant a church. She is there faithfully following, faithfully encouraging. And when I feel like I am insufficient, like I can't do whatever it is that I have to do in my life, if it may have nothing to do with pastoring, she's there faithfully encouraging and pushing and serving. And when I feel like giving up on working, I see she's working. Okay, I'm going to keep going. Then I have the elders and just people in the church that have been incredible Caleb's to me in doing this crazy thing. Um, I could name tons of people, and I probably should. Um, I have a blog you should read at some point about some of the Caleb's that came in our church in the early days. Aaron and Candace were huge ones for us. Um, Vicky's been an incredible Caleb. Uh, in recent months, I sat down with Jim because he's going off, and quite frankly, I said, I just need another Caleb. Because Jim has been an incredible Caleb. We're sending Caleb, who is going to be transitioning into a Joshua here in Mount Vernon. And you know what? Um, today, there's no better man to send. The man has been faithful, and he's been silent. You don't see much about Jim. He doesn't make a big deal about himself. But he's a gifted, faithful man. Um, Caleb's are so valuable. They are so valuable. Uh, we can never value them enough. And the beauty about a true Caleb is that they will not just help you do what you want. They will encourage you and help you with a vision for the mission of God and a commitment to God's word. Caleb has challenged me like no one else, as Caleb should, with a commitment to God's word. And this is what Caleb's doing to Joshua. He's like, remember what God's word said. And Jim has done that, and different people have done that in my life. They don't just like, oh yeah, that sounds like a good idea. They go, what does God's word say? All right, let's go. Caleb's are awesome. Last couple things, his faith is not only different and whole and humble, but it's also enduring, and this is beautiful. God kept this this man's faith strong for, for many years, and most of those years were not battles, right? Most of those years, think about this, 
were walking around a wilderness that he didn't deserve. He was the one that stood up and said, hey, let's do it. No, you guys can stay in the wilderness 40 years. Whoa, 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 I chose the right team. Right? But he endured for 45 years. And let's be honest, it takes all of about 45 minutes for us to become unfaithful when something doesn't be produced because of our faith. I prayed, Lord, I committed for at least 44 and a half minutes. What happened? Think about this. He has a promise, and the promise doesn't come true for 45 years. And yet here's how he describes himself. Speaking about the vigor and the energy of his, I mean, the excitement he has about his faith. Verse 10, he says, And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, <clears throat> just as he said these 45 years, since the time the Lord spoke his word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old, and I'm still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then for war, for going and coming. I mean, what energy. And just consider how you speak about your faith. If the gospel and God's mission still excites you. But I haven't seen anything for 10 years. 45 years! Of walking in circles and then battling with no clear statement of how long it would take for the war to be over. 45 years. This man speaks of faith in God as if he actually has a real, vibrant relationship with him. It's not some cardboard God that he just kind of follows every now and then or appeals to for some good moral rules. He has placed his faith and trust in a God who has walked with him every day for 45 years. This guy, think he's battling for God when he's 80. 80 years old, sword in one hand, bottle of Geritol in the other, you know, just going. Right? God's geriatric army, just like taking, he's excited about it. He's not like, oh, darn it, let's go. I mean, he's just like, he is excited. I mean, honestly, for, for a lot of us, and I, I really speak to probably those of you who've been Christians a long time. You remember back at a time maybe it was exciting to you. Where your faith was something fresh and real and you really saw God still working and something happened. It's kind of like the transition from elementary school to high school. I loved elementary school. Loved it. Wish I could go back there right now, right? The greatest things you had to figure out was like what cartoons you were going to watch and breakfast that morning. And in between, it was like, hey, recess, right? I mean, it was fun. Kids wanted to go to school. I was a high school teacher. The older they got, the less they wanted to be in school. Something was lost. The excitement, the allure. And my prayers that you... Grab onto the excitement of your faith again and you'll see God still working and you still have time to do something. It's enduring. It's no wonder that, uh, that God had a battle for these 80-year-old guys, though. 
But we need Caleb's like this, men and women with years of faithfulness and years of experiences to share, men and women whose faith is grows and grows and grows and grows and grows, and we watch it. I mean, think of what people thought when Caleb's standing up, they're all listening, what the young generation thought, what the young 65-year-olds were thinking, right? Man, if he can do it. Faithful men and women, quite frankly, who don't grow more cynical as they get older, but more hopeful and more excited and more encouraging. I don't know about you, when I first got married, I remember like the first year, you know, it's pretty romantic, like, everything's great, you know, and nothing can go wrong. And then you take your youthful love in front of like people who've been married like, you know, 30 years, and they're like, you just wait. Give it about five years. We'll see if that smile's still on your face. <laughs> We're pregnant. Oh, wait, wait, ten years. <laughs> see if you're excited about it being a parent then, right? It's like this cynicism, like, you don't know what you're in for. Compare that with our, with our faith. Yeah, I used to try that praying thing. Good luck. Versus men like, I know, I prayed for 45 years. God came through, just as he said he would. It's enduring. It's enduring. Last thing, it's bold. Caleb's faith is bold. Gosh, I love it. He's not simply grateful, though he is, that God has sustained him for 45 years. Made him alive, he said. He's ready for battle, but he doesn't just pick any battle. Right? He picks... The most difficult battle there is in the whole land. The very battle that scared them from going in the land to begin with. So he's not like, well, this is a season of rest. I'd like that nice little city over there in the shade of the trees. And just let me retire. Thanks, Josh. He says, no, I want the hill country where the giants still live. Let me have it. He's excited. He's bold. Still taking risks. Verse 12 says, So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day. He keeps on saying that day. You notice that? How the Anakim were there with great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Now, remember, these are not your everyday Canaanites. These are like the supersized version. Okay, Goliath style Canaanites. So these are big, huge men And Caleb's confidence doesn't come from his wisdom, experience, his fighting skill. It comes from the fact that God gave his word. We will defeat the giants because we're really tough and they can't get the old people. No, because God said. That's it. That's enough for him. A lack of gratitude, I believe, toward God. A lack of love for God's people. A lack of energy for God's mission. A lack of understanding of purpose and your role in that mission begins with a lack of trust and love for the Word of God. And the day that the Word of God becomes dead to you, an old book that's meaningless, is the day that your God dies. 
You are no longer worshiping the true God, but an idol that will give you nothing. We worship a living God. The Word of God is living, and the Word of God is brought to life by the Spirit living in those who are His. It brings you energy and power and hope and joy. How? I don't know. It's mysterious, but it's powerful. It's powerful. If you were here for the installation of Randy, we prayed a verse out of 2 Timothy about Timothy, and he says this in chapter 2, verse 6, For this reason, Paul reminding him, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power. Power. To be bold. To do crazy things. Now, I will say this as a caveat. Jesus never told his disciples to go make sure you do great things. Go make sure you take huge risks. What he told them was simply to believe that God is great and powerful and that in believing that, you will do great things. It will come. Doing great things will not prove your faith. Okay? I don't want you to leave thinking like, I got to do amazing, bold, crazy, psycho things, you know, and that's what will prove me that I'm a Christian to you guys and God will be, no, 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 no. Get away from that. Your approval is in the work of Christ alone. But I will say this, stepping out, and I say this as a person who didn't do it for over 30 years, very few steps of faith for me. And I'm not saying that everyone's in a planet church. That's what I was called to lead. But that is sad that that was one, I can say, the only step of faith that I took. I'm sure there might be little ones. But the truth is, bold step of faith don't prove anything. But without question, they stimulate faith like nothing else. My faith has grown in this wonderful, terrible experience more than any other time. Because I'm on the edge. I don't know if you can even possibly understand the tension it brought me to have to go from a job where I was teaching, guaranteed salary, vacations every summer, awesome, raise, wired in, if you work a year, you get a raise, go to a place where, how am I going to get paid? Not my choice. Took faith. And I still struggle with that. But man, has it stimulated the faith in God, my dependence upon God, my need for God. Bold, bold faith. Let's close it out. Caleb believed uh, God's great promises and he acted on them when no one else did. And because he acted, God says, this is why I'm blessing you. Verse 13 to 15 says, And Joshua blessed him, gave him Hebron, or gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. And therefore Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Now, the faithful leader, Joshua, keeps God's promises as he had said and he remembered. And he blesses the faithful soldier, Caleb. And he gives him this royal city, Hebron, which the city is one of a few royal cities in the land of Canaan. And it's the city that's the highest in Palestine. It is literally a city on a hill. 
which is obviously an example in many ways we're going to see for the rest of the tribes. But this is an area that Caleb had spied out 45 years prior. It is a city that is, is without doubt flowing with milk and honey. That's the city that they saw. It is a city where Abraham's wife, his forefather's wife, is buried. It is the city actually where David, the future king of Israel, is actually anointed king, and he reigns until he moves to Jerusalem for a time. And it says that Caleb receives his inheritance because he wholly followed God. And you see that one moment of faithfulness resulted in blessing for Caleb and a moment of rebellion resulted in a generation's condemnation. So for Israel, Caleb provides an example that's for the rest of the chapters here and how they get their own land, and you'll see that they fail miserably. But it's an example of Caleb's unbreakable faith in the sovereignty of God and his uncompromising commitment to mission, and he will be compared with all others as you see the others fail to drive out and fail to have faith in God's word. But for us, Caleb's faith might see, you're going to try, just so you know, you're going to try to distance yourself from this and go, well, that's, you know, that's, that's a nice example, but that's for like Old Testament Caleb-like guys uh, or pastors or, you know, you know, spiritual giants, not normal Joe Christians like me. And I will say this, Caleb's faith, it's not so much bold as it's just simply biblical. It's different, but not uncommon for a genuine, true believer. Following God wholly doesn't mean you follow Him perfectly. Don't mistake me. But it does mean that you act upon the Word of God as if you actually believe it. That's what Caleb's faith is. He acted upon the word of God because he had a different faith, a whole faith, a faith that was compelled. Those who are faithful act because the gospel changes them. And I'll end with a passage out of 1 Thessalonians, which you might seem is a strange passage. It's the opening to the letter to the church at Thessalonica. And Paul talks about what happened when the gospel came. And maybe this has happened to you, maybe it hasn't, but let me just be very plain and simple. In order to become a Christian, Jesus saves you because you confess with your mouth that you believe He died on the cross for you, not as a good example of humility, but because you are a depraved sinner worthy of death. And He died in your place the death that you deserve. Killed. And all the sin that is you and will be you was buried with him. And because he lived a perfect, sinless life, he has a perfection that when he raises from the dead, he gives to you. So that it doesn't matter whether you're obedient or not, it matters whether you put your faith in Christ's obedience or not. That's the gospel. And when you believe that, and you believe in your heart, and you confess it with your mouth, you are saved. 
and you are transformed. That heart that was stoned is ripped out and filled with the heart of flesh that is dwelled by the Holy Spirit, and He compels you to live in faith. This isn't something we aspire to. It's something that happens. And 1 Thessalonians says, in describing how the gospel came to them, he says this, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because, here's how we know, our gospel came to you, not only in word, not only in label, not only, I go to church and I'm a Christian, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us as of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. For not only was the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So we need not say anything. We can see it. It's obvious. That is power. As God, by His grace, grants us faith to believe, like Caleb, He will also grant you the the power to live. He will sustain you when it's difficult. He will strengthen you. And He will send you on mission until you're 85 plus also known as dead. Not everyone is made to be Joshua. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord in Christ is called to be a Caleb. 